Hi, I'm Terry Zabolski, pastor of Grace Community Church in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I'd like to thank you for listening to this week's message. I hope and trust that God's Word is a blessing to you as you live for Him each and every day. I've entitled the uh, message today, The uh, Picture of Grace. We're in our study of the Gospel of Luke, and we considered last time the amazing grace that was shown to uh, an older couple, Zachariah, and to his dear wife, Elizabeth, in that uh, in their old age, God would allow them to have a child. It was the longing of their life. It was the vain particularly of Elizabeth and that uh, Jewish culture uh, who could not have a child. Uh, quite a bit different than our day and our age uh, when it was considered to be perhaps the discipline of God upon her life. This uh, elder man now and his wife who were like a, an old country pastor who had served in a small area in the hill country of Judea, not far from Jerusalem faithful all those years, and now nearing retirement. And their hope and desire was not only for their nation and calling back the people to God, but more than that, personally, they had had a hope. And though it was faint and probably, probably almost gone, it never expected that God would, would show his incredible grace to them and allow them to have a child in older age. And I thought we would pause from our forward movement through the Gospel of Luke this morning to take another look, I consider it one of the greatest pictures of, uh, of grace in all of our Bible. And so we're going to look at that uh, as we continue our study forward next week uh, in the Gospel of Luke. Well, I've called it the picture of grace. Take your Bible, look at 2 Samuel chapter 9. 2 Samuel chapter 9. You know, it's often heard that a picture is worth a thousand words. And it may even be more than that, right? It may be more. You see some of the, the portraits of Rembrandt in the great museum. You go, describe that in a thousand words and do it an adequate job. You say, well, I can't do it. A picture is worth a thousand words or probably more. Well, it's surely true. Job tells us in uh, the same thing using different words where he tells us in 42.5 that uh, the eye is a better learner than the ear. Uh, we uh, perhaps learn through imitation and we see things clearly and, uh, and, and we learn far quicker, I think, and in a better fashion than if it was just through the ear gate. I'm like that. Are you that? I'm a visual learner. If I see something done, then I can do it. Uh, my, my sons are very adept at the computer. I'm not so much. They don't ever read the manual. I get started and it's for, forget it. And they just start doing this and that. And I said, now show me, how do you do this? And they just, oh, just, just do this, do this, do that, that, and you got it. And uh, like slow down and show it slow-mo so I can see it. And <laughs> maybe, just maybe I'll get it. Well, the eye is a better learner than the ear. Word pictures are, are also powerful. Words that describe and paint a portrait, if you will, of a lesson. They have great teaching power. Our Lord was the master at word pictures. As he uh, talked in his parables about all sorts, he painted a picture using words to teach the people around them whatever it was that he was teaching at that moment. Uh, a man went out, a young man went out, a man went out to sow, and he paints these pictures, word pictures. They're powerful. They're great teaching tools. Well, last week we saw, as I mentioned, the grace and the utter kindness of God extended to an old priest and his wife in our study of Luke, Zechariah and Elizabeth. And God worked. He worked. He gave the old uh, lady a little baby who we know as John the Baptizer or John the Baptist. 
It's a wonder, there is a wonderful story in the Old Testament. It's found in our text here this morning that beautifully pictures God's grace and kindness to you. And it paints a word picture of something that really happened and that uh, I see myself in the picture, and so should you. Uh, it is the grace of God. It's amazing grace. Somehow we sing that song, and our band played that for us wonderfully this morning, and we know of amazing grace, but sometimes it loses its sense, doesn't it? Uh, familiarity can breed contempt, because that which we know and we yawn, oh, I know that, I hear that. But remember the first time, if you've been saved very long, this idea of grace, what is it? You mean God extends grace to us? Wow. The wow factor in it. I want to dust that off so that we might see in this word picture, the story in the Old Testament, Mephibosheth. If you can say that, you get a quarter. Mephibosheth. We'll say it a few times so you get the hang of it. Mephibosheth is who we're going to focus on this morning. So take your Bible. We're going to look at three considerations of the amazing grace that God has lavished upon you if you know Christ the Lord is your Savior. For it is only by grace that any of us have ever been saved. Let's, let's read the narrative, this word picture, this account in David's life. He's king. Uh, he has uh, been uh, king for a number of years now. And, uh, and we'll locate the text a little bit later. Let's just read it now, Second Samuel 9, verse 1. And David asked, Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They, call, they called him to appear before David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? Your servant, he replied. The king asked, is there no one still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? And Ziba answered the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He's crippled in both feet. Where is he? The king asked. And Ziba answered, he is at the house of Machir, son of Amiel in Lodabar. It's Lodabar. So King David had him brought in from Lodabar, from the house of Machir, son of Amiel. And when Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. And David said, Mephibosheth, your servant, he replied, don't be afraid. David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness. For the sake of your father, Jonathan, I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? And the king summoned Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, Your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands his servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah, and all the members of Ziba's household were servants of Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table. And he was crippled in both feet. Well, I see in this wonderful word picture of grace, the amazing, I see the picture of God's amazing grace to you and to me. Not only to Zachariah and to Elizabeth in their nation and in their personal lives, but to us. 
It's the grace that is amazing. It is. And there are three considerations. The first one is that the grace of God is wonderful. It is wonderful beyond description, and it is totally unexpected. It's totally unexpected. Sometimes you and I receive gifts, and we sort of expect it, right? Not that we're ingrates or that we're prideful, but when it comes around to your birthday, right, you sort of, you sort of thought, well, maybe for my loved one or loved ones, I'm, I will receive a gift. And so it's sort of expected. Uh, Christmas time, we're in the habit as a culture, because of God's great gift, we have the joy of exchanging gifts. And I don't know uh, too many, if any, have gone through a Christmas without receiving something. And yet I'm sure there are some that have no one, how sad that thought is, to give them even the smallest of gifts. Sometimes I say to you, gifts are expected. Uh, They are. But uh, God's grace is so totally different. It's wonderful beyond your imagination. And it's totally unexpected. Well, why do I say that? Well, the first time in our Bible that we see God's wonderful grace being displayed is in Genesis chapter 3. And all of you should know that is uh, the chapter when the bottom dropped out. When our first parents chose to rebel in a place of paradise, beauty, wonder, a place of life and provision forever and ever. And they chose to transgress the known law of God, and they sinned. And yet they continued to live even after God's threat to them. It's not like the mafia, you eat, you die. But it was like that. He underlined it. In the day that you eat, you will die indeed. Don't do it. Don't do it. God had created Adam. He was mortal. He was He was made in God's image. He had built a wife for him, a beautiful lifelong companion. He had provided everything they needed. They could have lived with continuity forever in the fellowship and provision of God. Creaturely holiness, if you will. But a test to see if they would love the Lord with all their heart. Unlike you and me, they, they had no sin bent within them. We have a magnet within us. Uh, if you will, that uh, gravitates us, uh, calls us to sin, uh, that we feel enticed by, by temptation. They did not. And so the account tells us in chapter 3 that they sinned. Now you would have expected both of them, following that deliberate act of rebellion, to be uh, executed, to be snuffed out forever. God said, in the day you eat, you will die indeed. Now they did. They died spiritually. Their fellowship with God was separated. And that's the essence of death, separation. And uh, the beginning of their physical death began at that point. The day would come many, many years later when Adam would lie down on the soil and breathe his last and physically die. There would be the renting, the the taking of his person from his body. Death, physical death is a result of that. But you would expect, because of God's threat, in the day you eat of that, you will die, that God would have taken them out and executed them on that very day. But even in this, we see the initial grace of God. It's amazing, and it's unexpected. Be God's uh, grace, in case uh, you need to blow the dust off your definition of what it means, is simply God's unmerited favor, unmerited favor, undeserved favor or gift. That is, that God treats us kindly, even giving us gifts, when the reality is, is that we deserve the exact opposite. That's the grace that's amazing. We deserve not even to live one more second according to the Word of God. And God treats us kindly. 
This is uh, what Paul teaches us in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 when he tells us in that verse that all of you should memorize, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourself, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. It is by grace. It's wonderful. It's uh, totally unexpected. It's undeserved that God should treat us like he does. But that is the essence of the Christian message. That's the essence of the gospel. And that is the only way that you and I can stand before a holy God without being absolutely overwhelmed with fear, rightfully so. Because we are born sinners and we sin, I remind you, never ask God to give you what you deserve. Never. That's justice. And in your categories of thought, always be clear on that. To ask for what I deserve is an act of justice. What's fair? Uh, Most of us work and we receive a wage. And when payday comes around, whatever frequency that is, once a month, twice a month, every week, every other week, however that works, or when it's commission, when you make your sale, uh, you don't cower into your boss and say uh, uh, sheepishly, may I, have, uh, may I have that, please, show favor and give me that. No. You, uh, you've been hired, uh, you've been offered a wage, you've given the time, and hopefully you've worked with earnest, and uh, it's fair. It's right. It's more in the realm of justice uh, for the wages uh, that you have worked for, for you to receive. They are owed to you. We understand what that means. Grace is never owed. Grace is way above and beyond. And that's the way God treats us in Jesus only and because of him. He lavishes upon us his grace that is absolutely and totally amazing. And therefore, I never in my quietness of my prayer time, nor should you say, Lord, please give me what I deserve. Right? It'd be like, carry him out. It'd be like Ananias and Sapphira, right? There are the feet that carried your husband out, now you're going, you know? (laughs) Carry him out. Carry her out. Thrown into the lake of fire forever. Because of our sin. We are born in sin, and we sin. And the sad fact is, even after we come to Christ, there's a residue of sin still in us. We need not sin, that what I don't want to do, I do, and that what I want to do, I don't do. Romans 7, we sin, and we rush towards verses like 1 John 1, 9, or Psalm 32, 1, blessed is the man or woman whose sins are forgiven. We say, Lord, daily, cleanse me and wash me. It is amazing grace. It is the grace that is amazing. Never get over that. Never be ho-hum about that. Never. Our picture of grace is found in 2 Samuel 9. The second consideration this morning, as we see in David's kindness to Mephibosheth, where it beautifully portrays in a word picture God's grace to you and to me in Christ. You should know that in the ancient day, when a king took command, he would systematically and usually immediately in the early days or months of his of his reign, he would systematically kill anyone whom whom he perceived to be a threat to his throne. I'm thankful that we live in the United States of America, and when July comes, uh, July when when January comes around every four years, there's an inauguration of a president. They don't take the uh, former one out, and or all his children, his wife, and all the administration, and, the, and execute him in the back hall. You should know, if some of you know your history better than others, 
That was the common practice of the ancient day. You just exterminated them all. Men, women, children, and even infant babies. Get rid of them. Why? They could be a rival to your throne. And you would uh, be done in, and you would be killed, or your sons and daughters would be killed. That was the order of the day. And so the king of a new family, of a new dynasty, or what have you, would kill all the descendants. No rivals, no competitors. I'm the big maha. You check and see if I'm right on that. That was the common practice. And it's one of the most amazing things about our, our country is the, the change of power without any gun being fired. It's amazing. I think many people in the world look at that with a sense of holy hush, like they can't imagine. And they'll call the President of the United States because for this period of time, God has continued to favor our country, a country that is in sin and needs much prayer as we do. And yet uh, there's not a, a grabbing of the military and surrounding the White House, and I'm not leaving. But in this day, it was far different. It was. And so uh, when David assumed the throne uh, of Israel after King Saul and his dear son Jonathan were killed on Mount Gilboa there by the Philistines, on that battlefield, we see in, in, the, in the text uh, Saul's descendants uh, knew, the, knew the, the practice of the day. And they said, feet do your thing and run. And they ran for the hills. Now, just glance. Just go back a few pages in 2 Samuel chapter 4. Here we're, we're, we actually pick up the early story of Mephibosheth in 2 Samuel 4. 4, Jonathan, son of Saul, had a son who was lame in both feet. And he was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. His nurse picked him up and fled. So he was running. They were all fleeing. They were all running. And, and as uh, she hurried to leave, the nurse, uh, uh, he fell. She dropped him, and he became crippled. And his name was Mephibosheth. Well, I simply want to point out at this point that news came that uh, the king had been killed there on the battlefield, and Jonathan right near him, and word came back, and uh, pandemonium uh, struck out there in the palace. And they began to flee for their lives. That's a strange thought for 21st century American, but built into the context of this ancient day. And as uh, this little child of only five years old was being carried out. He was dropped. Mephibosheth was injured during the flight out of town. And as a result, he became lame for life, an invalid, if you will, uh, during that. Well, David's reign, prior to his great sin, I'll go back to, uh, chap go to chapter 7 of 2 Samuel. Uh, David's reign... <clears throat> David, you remember, had been anointed uh, to be the king even during Saul's reign. And David uh, took up his uh, reign in Hebron and finally there in Jerusalem. And uh, uh, during uh, this period of time, God's blessing just poured upon uh, David and his family, uh, his military and his countrymen. Uh, it's a reminder that uh, what we sow, we reap. And David's life up to this point is filled with blessing. And I'm reminded, as you and I who love the Lord make good choices, wise choices, God is delighted to bless your life with fullness and joy and blessing. doesn't mean you won't have trial or tribulation or heartache or sorrow. We will, such as living life in a fallen world. But David is under the blessing of the Lord. You can mark David's life forward and backwards from the point of his horrendous evil sin with Bathsheba. It's like all hell breaks loose 
And he begins to sow the seed of his rebellion, the heartache, the tears. And at one point, he has to flee from his own capital by the rebellion of his own son. But these days, the days we're looking at here are the days of the brilliant sunshine, the blessing, and the sweetness of like a Psalm 1 man is the abundance of God's blessing upon David. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, we discover David's Davidic covenant, and God promises him a future heir, not only on the immediate throne, who would be fulfilled in Solomon, his son, but looking off into the distance at a son who would come through his loin, predicting the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why when it comes to Christmas time, we sing of Bethlehem and the census that had to be taken there uh, in uh, the city of Bethlehem. Why? It was the city of David. And there in the city of David, a son would be born, and his name would be Christ the Lord. Because of that, David is blessed here in this called uh, David's covenant that God made him through the prophet Nathan of uh, the coming blessing. You go into chapter 8, and over and over we see David's victorious on the military field, God's blessing to hold back the evil uh, enemies of the nation of Israel and provide him with victory after victory after victory uh, on the field. And the text says it repeatedly, God gave victory uh, to all uh, of David. Uh, look at, you, you see it once in verse 7 of chapter 8, and the Lord gave David victory wherever he went. And so we have the blessing in 7, the covenant in 8, the experience of blessing and fullness that David is receiving as he walks with the Lord and in the joy of his salvation. Well, it's at this moment. Well, let me back up. Look at one. Uh, and during this time, the kingdom greatly expanded from the small little sliver of a nation that King Saul, the first king, enjoyed. It, it grew from 6,000 ten times under David's leadership to 60,000 square miles. David is happy and, and healthy, and his world is at peace. And as mentioned, the nation is prosperous. Well, it's right at this moment then. The nation has expanded. It's an incredible time of shalom or peace. David is in his palace, and all is well. Have you had those moments? The blessing of the Lord, all is well. And at those moments, some of you are wondering, what is going to happen? What is going to come around the corner tomorrow? Things are too good. My father used to say, bad things happen in three. I don't know where he ever got that. But you've heard that, haven't you? You have. I don't know when you begin to count them. When's the first one? How much time in between? You ever wonder about that? seems a little elastic, you know, like, well, yeah, Dad, but that was like two years ago, and now this bad thing, you're like, you're, you know what I mean. You sort of wonder this foreboding sense of doom. Some of you think that way. But anyway, that's not here. The sun is shining He's experiencing the blessing of the Lord. He's living for the Lord. His family is blessed. And he sits back, and at this point, he remembers his sweet covenant with Jonathan. Jonathan, that wonderful friend that God gave him. Now, he's referring, uh, go back to 1 Samuel 20. I just call your attention to this. 1 Samuel 20 is this brotherhood covenant that David and Jonathan made with each other. I mean, it's at that time where David was, was, was fleeing Jonathan's father, Saul, who wanted to kill him. And Jonathan was going to protect his, his, his dear friend, uh, David. And they make this covenant. And in 1 Samuel 20, 14 to <clears throat> verse 17, we find the covenant. You can write that down. I don't think I showed that on your sheet. But notice the covenant of friendship that was made. Just read that. And I, Jonathan says, I will shoot three arrows to the side of it as though I were shooting at a target. Then I'll send a boy and say, go find the arrows. 
I don't have the right verses there. Oh, there it is. I was reading the wrong chapter. In 14, but show me unfailing kindness like that of the Lord as long as I live so that I may not be killed. Back up to verse 20. Let's begin there. Then Jonathan said to David, By the Lord, the God of Israel, I will surely sound out my father by this time and the day after tomorrow. If he is favorably disposed toward you, I will not send you word and let you know. But if my father is inclined, this is Saul, to harm you, may the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if I do not let you know and send you away safely. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. But show me unfailing kindness like that of the Lord as long as I live, so that I may not be killed. And do not ever cut off your kindness from my family, not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord call David's enemies to account. And Jonathan had David reaffirm his oath out of love for him, because he loved him as he loved himself. There's a covenant of sweet friendship and brotherhood here at this point. And one of the reasons why not only did I love David early on in my studies of the Bible, but uh, when Faith and I, if God would give us a, a son, we felt that we would name him David. And we had that joy. And David means the beloved one or the one who is greatly loved. And then uh, we thought if the Lord would give us another son, you have to name the second son Jonathan. And so that's why we did just that. This covenant of friendship comes from that. And remember Jonathan's words, even after I'm cut off or our family is cut off, do no harm to my family and take care of them. Well, go back to our outline into our text in 2 Samuel 9. It's right at this moment of this time of prosperity and peace, David in his palace remembers his covenant with Jonathan. And he asks, are there any descendants that continue to be alive, descendants of Jonathan, that I might show them kindness? Verse 1, for Jonathan's sake and for the sake of his dear friend, based upon their covenant. Well, you should know at this point, David has been king for about 15 to 20 years, probably closer to the 15-year mark. And Ziba the servant of, of King Saul's household, he is called to come and to give a report. And he answers the king, yes, there is a son of Jonathan, but he's a cripple. He's a cripple. It's a, it's a disparaging comment. It doesn't quite come through in the original. And I give you the idea, sense of it, it's like this. Uh, yeah, there is one. Yeah, but he's... He's defective, uh, he's lame, and uh, I'm sure you won't want him. Uh, he's, uh, he's not worth much. That's the sense of it. Mephibosheth, this one. Well, David's response to this uh, Ziba is completely unexpected. Uh, where is he? Well, he happened to be hiding. The text tells us, in a worthless, barren place. Actually, the place is east of the Jordan River. It is a barren, almost God-forsaken wilderness area. Low to bar. Low is the Hebrew word for no. The bar means a thing or, or, or a word. It can mean word. It's like no place. It's like nowhere. Uh, I live in nowhere. I had a friend who pastored one time, Freddie Malasi, <clears throat> for years and years. He was in the center of the state of Pennsylvania, and I saw him give a lecture one time at the college, and he said, and I, I pastor in the middle of nowhere. And he said, there was a state, a picture of the state of Pennsylvania, he said, he went and put his finger sort of in the middle of it. He said, and that's nowhereville, and that's where I pastor. That's sort of what he is saying. This uh, royal-blooded son of, grandson of Saul, son of Jonathan, Mephibosheth. 
is hiding in a nowhere land, in a God-forsaken place. Well, imagine his surprise that David should send to Mephibosheth, uh, perhaps a chariot, uh, from his palace, pulls up to his, whatever his, uh, his house looked like, uh, and, uh, and mentioned that the king was calling for him. Now, that was an invite uh, you didn't turn down. Now, sometimes you'll receive an invitation. You'll say, like, nah, I don't feel like going. Or, yeah, I have a conflict. I've got something more important. I've got a date. I've got something else. Or I'm out of town. When the king called you, that was priority number one. You uh, cleared the calendar, and you went out and got in the chariot, uh, probably got a bath or something ahead of time, and you made your way. Now, I'm sure that Mephibosheth expected the worst, knowing the, the, uh, the, the culture of that day. Maybe he thought it was uh, his uh, last ride uh, that he would live, that surely the king was going to off with his head, that David would kill him. And I'm sure he feared. It's one thing to be strong and virile in, in uh mighty in body and spirit. It's another thing uh, to um, have a body that's kind of broken down. It's one of the things that Ecclesiastes talks about in chapter 12, where uh, an aged man whose body's crumbling, maybe it was a great gladiator in an earlier day, great athlete, mighty in spirit, maybe mighty in body, strong, huge biceps, you know, man's man. And now he's feeble and bent over. His eyes don't work well. And, and now he trembles. He trembles at sounds of the night even. His body is withering. Well, Mephibosheth was that. Not as an old man, but his body never worked right. He was lame. Never walked. So he was dependent upon others all his life, even though he was the son of royalty. And so he feared and he's brought into the king's presence, as we read. And he, he calls himself David's servant. He bows low to the king, the son, grandson of a king. And David tells him, or he calls himself, even in verse 8, I'm likened to a dead dog. <clears throat> There's no pride. It's all humility as he comes before King David. And what does David tell him? And I don't you love that? Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid, for you will always have a place at my table. Don't be afraid, Mephibosheth, as he is bowing down. Verse 7, don't be afraid. You know, there's the Lord Jesus in the gospel gives us many commands, doesn't he? Make disciples. We talked about that a few weeks ago. That's the great mission of the church. We don't make widgets. We don't get together just because it's wonderful, and it is. We're to be about something. We're to make disciples. He says in a lot of other places, he calls us to be holy. He calls us all kinds of commands. Do you know the most often reported command given from the lips of the Lord Jesus? This will probably surprise you. It's similar to the words of David here to Mephibosheth. The Lord tells us in one form or the other, don't be afraid. Fear thou not. Don't fear. Perhaps uh, we need to hear that because uh, we're sinful and we approach God, His holy throne, by grace. And there's a sense where it's a creature and He's creator and God and holy and awesome and wonderful, that's only natural for us to be timid and afraid. We see it in the boat with the disciples when the Lord calmed the storm in Mark 4. They were terrified. Who is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? The text says they were terrified. Don't be afraid. David tells Mephibosheth, don't be afraid. You will always have a place at my table. Now, I have that on your sheet because David mentions this four times. 
It's like he bends over backwards and so that we, Mephibosheth, and we don't miss the point. This one who thought he was worthy of death, being part of the former dynasty, is brought near, not because of anything that he has done, but because of another, because of his father and the covenant of friendship that was made early. David, in his kindness, he expresses it to Jonathan's only remaining son. Four times you will eat at my table. But more than that, he gave him all of his, he restored all of his grandfather's wealth that had been held in trust and kept by his servants. And now it's given to the cripple, this Mephibosheth. And his servants, his father's servants, were to work the land and their sons. I say to you, in giving him this royal pension, it is the grace of God. In all of this, David showed him, verse 7, this hesed, this loving, loyal, faithful kindness, this grace on account of Jonathan. What a beautiful picture, is it not, of God's grace for us. And that's the third and final consideration, David's actions parallel God's amazing grace, the grace that is amazing for you and for me, for it abundantly pictures God's kindness to us. You say, well, how does it? Well, notice this. We'll just walk through this. A, once Mephibosheth enjoyed the fellowship of his father. He was a young boy. Oh, how a father delights in the, the fellowship of a young son. I remember that so well when my boys were little. To teach them of the world, the frogs and the snakes and, and everything that was out there. Uh, to have them go with me at places, down to the donut shop and to the gym, and to teach them basketball and football, and to teach them about the Word of God, and to take them to Sunday school, and to make sure they would come to know of the Lord Jesus, to be with them. It's such a joy, such a blessing. Mephibosheth, in his early days, and he only had five years when he would have enjoyed that time with his Beloved father, Jonathan, and all how he must have loved, looking for his dad to come home. As all boys look for their dad, don't they? They look for their moms as well. But they look for their dads especially. To spend time with dad is a precious, a precious, wonderful thing. Well, in a parallel that I don't think is too far-reaching, it parallels our first parents, Adam and Eve, who enjoyed in the sweetness of that garden, in their innocency, that sweet fellowship with God. God would come and commune with them in the cool of the day. That would be the afternoon, and they would fellowship with God. In a way, we can little imagine what that must have been like. Oh, the joy of that. The joy that should be ours in heaven when once, once again, when we will enjoy that to the fullest extent. will be. When disaster struck, fear came. Dad was killed there on the mountainside by the Philistine. Fear came, came to all in the house of Saul, the house of Jonathan. Fear. And Mephibosheth was carried and dropped. He experienced a fall. He fell. He hit the floor. That was not as bad of a fall that humanity endured when Adam and Eve fell. And all of us uh, were thrown into sin. For in Adam, all sin. All of us. The fall. Theologically, we understand what it is. And day to day, you and I live out the reality of fallen humanity in our life. Simply glancing at the obituaries in the Harrisburg paper today. And you'll see those of all variety of ages living out the reality of that fall of Adam. And the result of that fall, and the day that you eat of it, you will die indeed. We all have an appointment with death because of the fall. Meshivetheth, he fell, fear. And men and women everywhere fear as a result of our few days on earth and then dust. We'll see 
David, out of his unconditional love for Jonathan, who has been gone now probably 15 years, sought out anyone in his family whom he might extend grace. And I'm reminded God does just this with us. Not because of us. You might think, well, I'm a pretty nice person. You know, I have a nice personality. I'm mostly up. I can play basketball. I'm a good soccer player. I do fairly well at school or work. I'm a pretty good guy. No, that's not what the Bible says. And God's treatment for us is based upon nothing that we do or that we are. Nothing. It was just like David's unconditional love for Jonathan that he sought out to extend grace. God does this with us because of his unconditional love uh, uh, and acceptance of his son and his son's death on, on the cross. The parallel is overwhelmingly remarkable. And it's us to a far greater uh, degree and value than even that of David with Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth. Well, D, this disabled man had nothing. He lived in Nowheresville. He had no wealth. The wealth of his grandfather up to this point was kept from him. No bank account, no wealth, no livestock as we would understand. He had nothing. He did nothing. He couldn't hardly do anything. He was lame, and certainly he deserved nothing. You see how we are in the picture here? It's overwhelming. All Mephibosheth could do was to humbly accept David's kindness to him, and that's salvation. When we, with open, outstretched arms, receive the kindness and the grace of God that's totally undeserved and unexpected. I mean, Mephibosheth got up that day. It was a day like any other day. The sun usually shines over in that part of Israel, in that part of the world. Little did he know the day of the king's chariot would show up and his life would be forever changed. He said, what did I do to deserve this? Nothing. What was I able to do? Nothing. Uh, what, uh, I have nothing even to offer. And so it is we as sinners without any hope, without hope, we accept God's gracious favor to us because of his only begotten Son, even our Savior. Well, E, this, so the king restored the cripple from his miserable condition to what? A place of fellowship and a place of honor with him. What a change of events. We had some time ago in our study of Joseph talk about the amazing events that took place in his life when he went from one day from the prison, forgotten, having been thrown in there by Potiphar's wife, remember, to the palace in one day. Talk about shoots and ladders. Do you ever play that? Shoots and that's the ladder to the top. Wow, I want to land on that square. Well, in one day, think of Mephibosheth and how his life so totally and dramatically was changed, not by anything that he had done. He was clueless. He didn't even know what was up. And God visited him through the servant uh, in the kindness of David because of Jonathan. And I say to you, the parallel is unmistakable. The word picture is vivid and brilliant. For that's you and that's me in the picture. For this is what God has done to us because of Christ. He has brought us. One day he visited us. I don't know where you were when you first heard of the grace of God and the offer of salvation that could be yours. God visited you and saved you and brought you close in the close fellowship with him. It's unbelievable. It's unexpressible. It's remarkable, this grace that's amazing. F, God, David adopted Mephibosheth into his royal family, and he provided for him everything that he needed and way beyond 
the servant of Ziba and his sons would now care for him, and he would have plenty beyond plenty. And I say that's just as what God does for us. We who are far away are now treated as sons and daughters. Romans chapter 8. We are brought nigh. We are adopted into God's family. He calls us sons. We cry out, Abba, Father. Wow. Mephibosheth treated as if he were David's own flesh and blood. That's us. God saves us if you're saved, and he treats us like the great saints of yesteryear. We pull up to the table and we sit there with provisions that we didn't earn and, and the grace and, and the safety and all that God lavishes, I say lavishes upon you and me because of his son. It's unexpected. It's wonderful. It's beyond description. It's the grace that's amazing. It's the sweet visitation that Zechariah and Elizabeth enjoyed, not only nationally, that the Messiah was soon to come, but that they would have a child. And I say it's the same grace that saves us and lavishes upon you and me and the many answers to our prayer and the way that God cares for us and provides for us, not just this much of our life, but all of our days, whether they're this long or that long. God says, I'm always there. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Never. And the fellowship that is ours. Oh, I love that fellowship. Through prayer and the reading of the word and the serving of God. I say to you, by a far greater role because of Christ, we play the role in this word picture of Mephibosheth. We're sons and daughters adopted because of Christ. And gee, and last, Mephibosheth's Limp was a constant reminder of the, of the king's grace. And I say, doesn't our sin do that for us? I mean, we need never sin. We've given everything so that we need not sin, but we sin. It's like a limp. I was happy this week, this first week, uh, I was able to leave the cane at home. Cane is able, right? <laughs> I carried it in the car, and the last several days... I kind of hung it on the hook near the door. Now, I kind of walk funny. It's kind of a little kind of a waddle, particularly when I just get up and get started. But uh, the limp, it reminds me of Jacob's limp when he wrestled with the Lord that night. It was to be a constant reminder of that evening and that visitation. Our sin is like that. It reminds us when the, we ought not sin, but as we confess it and forsake it, it reminds us like a limp that uh, of who we are and of the pit we've been dug and of the grace that's amazing, even as Mephibosheth enjoyed. Can you imagine that? Just uh, one scene before we close with lessons. There in the king's palace, um, it's dinner time. The dinner bell rings. Don't you love the dinner bell? Oh, dinner's up, right? One of Faithy's great meals. And there the king comes in, takes his place at the head of the table, and Ammon comes in. And beautiful Absalom comes in with the long flowing hair, right? And the rest of uh, David's children sit around this great banquet, the king's table. Solomon comes in. He just left the study. He's always reading books, that wise man that he was. He takes his place at the table. And bit by bit, uh, the moments pass, and finally, here comes Mephibosheth. Can't walk in, although he probably has a cane, but he's, uh, he's carried in. And his chair is pulled out, and he's placed in his chair. This one who was totally undeserving. He was outside of the family. He uh, had nothing to offer. He's put in a seat. He's pushed into the table, and he is invited to eat of the king's fare, sumptuous, full, overwhelming, all the days of his life. I say to you, we play the part there, far more than even Mephibosheth, as God invites us to come and invites us to sit down as his sons and daughters to partake of his fare and provision. 
that satisfies. As we fellowship with him, I say to you, it is a powerful word picture. Probably one of the most powerful word pictures of grace in all of the Bible. Well, lessons for our life. Number one, I say to you that God offers salvation to you today. Maybe you're here and you have never received the Lord Jesus as your Savior. That gift is there for you to take today. You need to confess that you're a sinner and lost and under judgment. This gift of salvation is free. It's all by grace. You need to say, Lord Jesus, I receive you as my Lord and as my God. Thank you for dying for me. Thank you for saving me. And God will save you according to his word. Will you receive him today if you never have? I urge you with every ounce of everything in me. You don't know if you have tomorrow. Today is the day of salvation. Number two, if you know Christ the Lord is your Savior, marvel, yet more be amazed at God's grace to you. It is the grace that is amazing. And may it never be ho-hum. And may God forgive you if it has become that. Oh, I know that. Oh, I know that story. Oh, it's ho-hum. Blow the dust off it. Ask the Lord to deal with the sin or hardness in your heart. And may you never get over the fact that you and I are totally undeserving living in a nowhere land. There's nothing in us that would cause God to move favorably towards us. But he has, if you know him as Savior. Praise him, praise him. Rejoice in the grace that is yours. Number three, never forget where you came from. Never forget, never. I grew up in Buffalo, New York, and in the old and older days, uh, in the immigrant days, more so, there were different sections of town where different folks that came from lived, partly because there was language commonality and partly just because they were a lot of them families and cousins. And it was not uncommon in our older city in the greater Buffalo area to say, well, that's the Italian district and that's the Polish and there are Canadians over there and and these over here, and that kind of thing. And, and it's funny. Uh, I'll, I'll see names, and I often wonder what, uh, where they came from and that. It's just part of my growing up. Uh, just you were aware of that to that day. It's funny because my children don't even think that way. They don't. They say, well, I think that name is Russian. Is that Russian? Well, how, who cares, Dad? Why do you even, you know, just, just the way I was wired growing up. On a far different venue, never forget the home country that you and I came from, the pit from which we were dug. Never, ever, ever forget that we're sinners deserving of hell and we're saved by grace. Never. Number four, let me call each one of us every day to enjoy the sweet fellowship that God offers you every single day. Come and dine. He says the Mephibosheth are said four times, come and dine at my table, sit at my table. God invites you and I to come, to open the word of God every single day. Do it early. Meet with him. Get on your knees. Worship him. Adore him. Lay your burdens and requests. Cover your loved ones with prayer. Ask God's blessing on your family. Moms, pray for your children. Dads, cover them. Business people, pray for your accounts. God hears and delights in that, and God will bless you. Come and dine and dine daily. And five and last, remember, grace is from God, and it's never deserved. Never, never, never. Well, a picture is worth a thousand words. I don't know how you would describe, how about the Mona Lisa? What a puss on her, huh? I don't know why it's worth so much money. Oh, my. But it is. I couldn't even describe that in a thousand words. The grace of God. What a picture. 
David's love for Jonathan, and he didn't forget. We tend to forget, don't we? He didn't forget his, his covenant with Jonathan. And he treated his son, Mephibosheth, kindly because of that. That's us. We're in the picture if you know Christ. Praise God for that. Oh, the grace of God. It's amazing. Amazing. 